Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for um, the rain. We thank you for um, the gift of your mercy that is renewed like the dew every morning. And we need it. I pray that as we uh, approach your word this morning that we would be ever thankful for our high priest who intercedes for us, um, for our forgiveness, for our growth into his image, for our uh, continued growth and our love for one another and our boldness in sharing the good news of the gospel of grace. I pray that as we uh, look over this passage this morning that your Holy Spirit would do some more heart work this morning, um, drawing us into Jesus more so that we prize Him above all else and want to sit at His feet rather than be distracted with the thousands of other things that this world has to offer. We love you and we thank you for this time that we have together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in Acts 20. Acts 20. We're starting uh, the farewell tour here as Luke starts describing Paul's journey to Jerusalem, the final leg of Acts. Uh, by way of review, last time we talked through um, that Paul was already deciding to leave Ephesus. He'd been in Ephesus for quite a while, done a great work there. Um, there was some commotion that happened at the end of chapter 19. Let's go through that real quick. What, what had happened there? There were guys who were silversmiths, goldsmiths, artisans, and they had no little consternation, to borrow Luke's words, uh, about some problems with Christians in Ephesus. What was the deal? Cutting in their business, how? What was going on? Because people weren't, uh, they weren't, they weren't buying the idols. It was, uh, um, uh, the, this kind of new, this, this new group was, was convincing people that, uh, you know, these idols, this is wrong. Right. So their business is built on the worldview that this goddess, Artemis, was the end-all be-all, and everybody worshipped her, so let's sell stuff with, you know, let's market that logo to everybody. And uh, that was being cut into by Christianity spreading in Ephesus. Paul had already announced something before that whole uproar happened, right? He already said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. And then the uproar happens. How did the uproar get resolved? What, what, what do we draw out from that? Remember what happened? Did Paul give a great speech and calm everybody down? Who, who made the who made the a clerk? A clerk. The 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 city uh, had an administrator that was kind of the liaison between the Roman government and the local autonomous government there. And the Roman official makes the argument that these men have done nothing illegal, and you're in danger of being charged with unlawful assembly or disruptive assembly. And we talked about how that was a theme that Luke draws out in that scenario that would play out in the second, third century, why would you persecute us? We are citizens who are very lawful. We support you. We honor the king. We pay our taxes. We do all this stuff. 
why would you persecute us? We're your best citizens. We take care of the people you don't want to take care of. And so that's the thing that Luke draws out there. But all of this is set in the relief of Paul's leaving. And today, um, we explore this uh, another comparison. Luke draws out the comparison between um, the, the city clerk saying, Paul and the Christians have no fault here. And there's this echo of Pilate, I find no fault in him. Right? There's a, that kind of comparison that's being done. And here we see another comparison. We're going to explore this comparison as he leaves Ephesus, um, which he states later that he's never going to see them again. There's this foreboding trip to Jerusalem. Well, who does that sound like? You know, it sounds like Christ who set his face like flint to go do what he needed to do in Jerusalem. But Paul, you'll see this throughout 20 through the, through the end, he is determined to go. Even though he has warning after warning after warning, you're going to face persecution here. You're going to be possibly killed here when you go to Jerusalem. He doesn't, he's, he's focused. He knows what he needs to do and he's going to do it. So this passage today is kind of a farewell tour. He goes to the churches that he has been ministering these past three journeys we've gone through to tell them goodbye. For, for all intents and purposes, he does not expect to see them again. Um, in the middle uh, of this itinerary we get today, in verses 1 through 17, there's this stark reminder of the grace of Christ and the power of God. So let's look at verse 1 through 6 real quick. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." All right. What strikes you about this account? What strikes you about this? Paul did a lot of encouraging. Paul did a lot of encouraging. How about what Luke says here? Descri- what is he describing? All the people that went with him. There's all these people that went with him. What else do we see in this? He's very specific about dates. A lot of dates. He's got a very specific mindset on what, how long they were, seven days, five days, all this kind of stuff. What else? A plot was made against him. A plot was made against Paul. Any details? Nope. How, how, what time frame do these six verses span? Uh, over three months. Over three months. And we get six verses. There's a bunch of people involved. There's a lot of traveling involved. There's a plot involved. And we get six verses. We get no details. What strikes me is how sparse this is. 
Again, we're faced with Luke with <clears throat> no little sparseness in his detail. It just really doesn't give us a whole lot. There is a lot that is going on in these six verses, and the only way we gather it is because of Paul's letters during this time. First, Second Corinthians, end of Romans, and Galatians. Especially 2 Corinthians uh, 1 through 7 give us a lot more of what's going on here. Um, he, Luke says nothing about what Paul tells the disciples as he's bidding them farewell. He says nothing about why he spent three months in Greece. He doesn't tell us why, uh, about the plot of the Jews. He doesn't tell us why he changed his mind from taking a boat in Syria to go to, uh, by land through Macedonia. And he doesn't tell us why he has all these people with him. I mean, before we've seen him take two, one, you know, uh, Luke and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Silas and Timothy and, you know, the, maybe those guys. He's got like a ton of people going with him. He doesn't tell us why. I, I think it's important to remember Luke's purpose in these accounts of Luke-Acts. He says at the very beginning that his goal is to give a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's not into all the minutiae detail. He wants to give Theophilus an overview of what's been accomplished among us. Um, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The point is to make to be a, a, an avenue of an encouragement to this guy, to this reader that he's writing this account to. So he doesn't deal with some of the things that are actually going on in this. We know from 2 Corinthians that it's during, where, where Luke has verses 1 and 2 in chapter 20, during that time is when Paul, at the end of his Ephesian ministry, has massive conflict with the Corinthian church. It's during this time that he he writes that, what he calls his uh, distressing letter, or the, the severe letter, we call it, that we don't have a copy of, and, and mercifully so, I think, because I think a lot of us would probably try to pattern our, you know, out of, the, we want to see the grace stuff from Paul. He, I think that letter is probably so severe, he said he wrote it with tears. <clears throat> and I don't think it was like tears, oh, this is so good, this is going to get him. I don't think those are the kind of tears he was feeling. He knows that what he's doing is going to wound them. What was going on, we gather from 2 Corinthians, was that there was some opposition faction in the church at Corinth. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Uh, I, the really spiritual ones, I'm of Jesus, you know. Um, there was this whole faction that rose up and challenged Paul's authority to lead them. And it was very stark, very harsh. They, they did personal attacks on how he looked, how he talked. I mean, they just went after the guy. And he responded to them directly, we gathered from 2 Corinthians, in this letter that's incredibly severe and pointed. And, and he sends it with Titus. Take this letter to them. And so as he's traveling here in verses 1 through 6, especially verses 1 and 2, there's this idea, and we again, we overlay 2 Corinthians 1, chapters 1 through 7 over this time period to kind of get a fuller picture. What's going on is as he's traveling, he's waiting for Titus to bring back word from Corinth. How did they receive this? How did this go? Are they, are they going to 
reject me finally? Is all my work there in vain? What's going, what's going to happen? Are they going to repent? And so we see him traveling here um, and waiting on Titus is the idea that we get from 2 Corinthians. He's waiting on response from uh, news from Titus to, um, to, to, to say how the letter went. Um, anyway. All right. So Paul says goodbye to, to Ephesus and sets out for Macedonia, hoping that Titus would meet him along the way with a good report from Corinth. Uh, he stops, we know from uh, combining the two accounts, that he stops in Troas to, to give a witness there. Uh, but his mind was always on Corinth. But Titus didn't join him in Troas, so Paul moved on to Macedonia, probably Philippi, hoping to intercept Titus there, which we learn from 2 Corinthians. He does intercept Titus there. And it was a good move because Titus brings him good news. And there's rejoicing that goes on. They have received the letter. They were convicted by the letter. They did discipline those who were the opposition people. And the church has been reconciled to Paul. And so it's from this point that we have Paul writing what we have as 2 Corinthians, which he's sending on ahead before he goes to Corinth for one last visit. Again, he's leaving. He knows he probably is not going to return. And he's trying to make everything right between the churches there and him before he leaves. I mean, think about the emotional, if I leave, I never see them again, and we've got this big thing. I want to get it reconciled. What does that tell you about Paul? What? He cares. He cares. There is a, a consistent theme in the way he deals with each of these churches. Of They're not just a notch in his belt to go brag about to his Jerusalem Christian brothers. He loves these people. And he wants to see them reconciled. Um... All right, so Luke records his journey to Corinth in, uh, in verses 2 through 3, with, and he calls it, he goes to Greece. But what, he, what he's, you know, again, he's talking in general terms, but most, most scholars will say he's talking about he went to Corinth here. Um, and it's his final visit to Corinth, and it's probably in the winter of 55-56 A.D., and it's during this time that, that uh, the smart folks tell us that Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans. So there's this issue with Corinth that's going on that Luke doesn't even mention. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he'd leave that? That's kind of a big deal. Why do you think he'd leave that out? It's all speculation. But just put yourself in his sandals. Why do you think he leaves it out? Because he loves silence on Sunday morning when I ask the question. What's the purpose of the letter? Encouragement. How does church conflict encourage us? Not that we ignore it. We see it very clearly in the, in the Corinthian letters, what's going on. But that's a warning to us, isn't it? There's nothing as disheartening as to, fearing, as to hear Baptists fighting over car carpet. You know, or some other factious issue. That's a discouragement to the body to hear that. And so Luke's not focusing on that. He's going after 
what is Christ doing here? Uh, that's one reason. What's another thing that may be going on at this time? We talked about um, before that, um, that Paul is, is working toward. That's also ta- talked about in, in First and Second Corinthians. There's, a, there's relief effort going on, right? He's going to all these churches in the Gentile areas and gathering up an offering or a gift to give to the Jerusalem churches under great persecution. Luke never mentions it here. This is the time that that's going on. He doesn't mention it. Why do you think he'd leave that out? Any idea at all? It's not important to the point he's trying to make. It's not important to the point he's trying to make. He's talking here about Paul's heart to the people. That's what he's drawing out. What should your leaders look like? He, he's drawing out Paul's love for the churches. And this offering has a couple... There, there's a couple of issues here with the offering. One, there's real need in Jerusalem. And, and some scholars suspect that maybe Luke was worried that you know it'd make the... It'd be embarrassing to the Jewish Christians and the Jew, you know to the Jewish community and among the rest of the to know how needy they were for money, um, which I mean there may be some truth to that I don't know, but um, the other thing with the offering is that it's a it's a tangible it's important to Paul to do this because it's a tangible way to show the the unity between Gentile churches and the Jewish Christians. Look at look at your brothers serving you. You were you were um, you were uh, reticent to let them in. You were concerned with how they were going to to uh, to to infiltrate your Jewishness, and here they are helping you. There's that kind of um, there's that kind of tangible expression there. Um, Paul is putting off. We learn this from Romans. Paul is actually putting off his trip to Spain, which he's absolutely wanting to do. He's putting off a trip to Spain to get this money to the Jerusalem church. It's very important to, to get it to them. And he's taking incredible personal risk in going to Jerusalem. And this may explain sort of the shift between uh, verses 3 and 4 between traveling by sea or land. When, when you got a bunch of money and you're traveling with a bunch of money it's probably not the best thing to travel in the most risky way possible with the money of other people that you're trying to get. So sea travel was risky. He was shipwrecked three times. He was very familiar with, with the risks at sea. Uh, and so he, he decides kind of at the last minute to, to go through Macedonia by land. Um, and he takes a bunch of people. Each of these people are delegates from the various regions of the churches going to Jerusalem to represent their church area to, to present this gift to the, to the Jewish Christians. Um, and he tells us this in 1 Corinthians 16.3. He says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So you have all these guys mentioned who are representing the church, the Gentile church, to the Jewish church, to the Jerusalem church in, in a gift. Who else joins him? Verses 5 and 6. 
talking about uh, Sopater and Aristarchus and those guys? Yeah, other than those guys specifically listed, who can we glean also joins Paul at this time? Timothy. What'd you say? Luke. How do you know that? Because he said we. Now, when's the last time we saw we in, in, uh, in Acts? It was in Philippi back in chapter 16. So, again, the smart guys have kind of in, in brilliantly put this together for us that it seems as if Luke stayed behind in Philippi and ministered there and then hooks up again with, um, with Paul at this point to go with him to Jerusalem. And from this point on, it's going to be a first-person kind of description of what's going on um, with Luke. So Luke is with him at this point. He doesn't mention the offering, even though it is mentioned in, the, in, in Paul's speech to Felix in chapter 24. We'll get there. Um, what he does want to show here is this foreboding journey to Jerusalem by Paul. And it was as foreboding for Paul, the, the picture is as, as it was for Jesus, and he begins the journey with the restoration of a very sleepy young man. Let's look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Just let that sink in. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> bored to death. <laughs> what, do you, what do you gather from this other than the, the uh, bored to death reference? What, what do you gather? They like to be together for long periods of time. Well, they like to hear the word. They like to hear the word. There's, you know, the concept of fasting is a lot of times boring to us, and staying up and missing our sleep is kind of boring to us, especially me. And I mean, but Paul, he he beat his body. He sacrificed his own personal needs and flesh for the things that were paramount. Why would he do that? Why would he spend this much time with them? He's leaving the next morning. He loves them and he loves God. He loves them. And he knows he's not going to see them again. He, you get the sense from this. He's just trying to squeeze every ounce of time with these people that he loves. And this is a really, it's kind of, a, it's kind of written in a humorous way. But it's one of those things, we can laugh about it now because we know how it ends, <laughs> right? He's sitting there. Uh, Paul is, 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 what's the day of the week is this? What does it say? Friday night. First day of the week. 
first day of the week, so we would guess Sunday, right? I would think um, there's some some bickering over whether or not it's Jewish, you know, Sabbath thing and how the hours work. I think it's Sunday because, <clears throat> frankly, what are they doing? What are they doing together? What does he call it? Breaking bread. Breaking bread. They come to do what? Have a meal. The, have a, there's a meal involved. There. And Paul is speaking. What is he doing? He's preaching, right? He's preaching the word. They're having a meal. They're meeting on the first day of the week. What does that sound like? It's, they're having church. They're in um, a community setting having worship together. And here we have really the first, good save, we really have the first, um, one, one, of the, one of the first uh, descriptions of what a, what's the liturgy of the early church? Apparently it was long. And apparently they weren't bashful about that. Um, there wasn't a committee that was formed saying we've got to, we've got to instruct Paul to keep his sermon shorter. There, there wasn't any kind of uproar about can we eat now? I'm starving. There wasn't any of that. They were hungry to hear what he had to say and he was hungry to tell them. And they just kept it going. There's first day of the week. Why, um, as good uh, Jewish sect kind of converts here, would they be on the first day of the week? What, what's significant about that? That's the day of the resurrection. The Lord's day, they call it later. So you have, again, Christians meeting on the first day of the week. And what are they doing? There's a meal, because it says when he had eaten, right? There's also a special meal. They break bread, which is a reference to communion or Lord's Supper, right? So you know that they're breaking bread. They're having a meal, a fellowship meal together, um, you know, at Torchy's, Panera Bread, something like that. They're having a meal together, and then they're hearing the word being preached and preached and preached. What time of the year would this be, you think? We get from Luke that this is probably in the spring, that it's probably, I mean, it's around Passover. That's what's going on. I think Passover just ended here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread he talks about, which has that time frame. He's preaching to them on the first day of the week, the resurrection day of Jesus, at Easter time. And what happens? There's a resurrection. There's a resurrection. What an amazing gift of God to this group of Christians and, and a lot of people think that that's exactly what Paul's preaching on at this time. It would seem like the natural thing if you're doing a topical sermon for the you know, seasonal thing. He's going to be preaching on the resurrection, which Paul always preached on the resurrection because without the resurrection, we're just a bunch of vain, uh, vain livers. So you have a whole motif here of Paul leaving and Christ doing something um, with this young man, which incidentally the Greek there is young man is kind of a misnomer. He's probably 9 to 14 years old. This is a kid. Way past his bedtime, listening to Paul. He'd probably watched, you know, his hometown team the night before win an, un, you know, against all odds victory against the Yankees or something. I don't know, just came to mind. And so he's, he's tired. He's up in the upper room. There are lamps going on. So it's just kind of burning the oxygen out of the room. So he goes over to a window to get a breath of fresh air and kind of keep himself awake because his mom gave him stink eye in church because he kept nodding off. And so he's over by the window and Paul keeps preaching. 
and preaching and the guy just loses it. He falls from his perch in the window. Three stories. Now, if you're about to leave and never see these people again, that's kind of a mood crusher, right? But what a grace of the Holy Spirit to not only restore this young man, but also to do it in a way that reminds them of the power of God and the control of Christ, the leadership of Christ, the ultimate pastor over his flock by restoring, I have the power to give life, right? As Paul is leaving. I mean, he's concerned for them. I wonder if they were looking, where's Paul going? He's been here for years. What are we going to do? We don't have his leadership anymore. We're not going to... And so there is this, again, the no little comfort that Luke refers to probably was comforted by the kid not dying, but also on just how powerful is our king to be able to breathe life into this kid again. What a great reminder of the resurrection and the power that's actually there. This isn't boring theory. There's meat here. There's something to sink our teeth into and live our lives, even if uh, our leader that we love is being taken away. All right. Um, incidentally, does this narrative remind you of any other kind of narratives that we see in the New Testament, Old Testament even? Can you think of other stories of resurrections? Other than Christ, obviously, was a big one. Do you remember? Resurrections? Yeah. There's se several with Christ when... Right. Um, there's the, not the centurion, but some military, Roman military guy right, right. that approaches him, and he's got a son or a daughter that's sick. Jairus' daughter, daughter. yep, yep. And Send uh, it. I have, I'm a commander, too. All you got to do is say it. I know your orders be followed. I haven't seen this faith is great in all of Israel, Jesus says to that. What are some others? Both, actually, yes. They're, both of them have situations. Yeah, there, there's a widow that's there that... And does this weird breathe in his mouth thing and, and that kind of... There is a consistent theme of God being the author of life through the prophets, through Jesus. And again, Lazarus being the most obvious one of our need to be reborn. There's that theme again and again. And you see that here working through Paul. The other thing this does, it... Um, it lets us know, it connects us to his, his, the next stage of his journey to Jerusalem. Paul is looking at death here, right? The risk of it is there. And it's a comfort to him to see, this is who I serve. So, um, what does Luke tell us Paul did after this whole resurrection episode? What does he do? He keeps talking. Stay away from the windows. And he keeps talking. Like it's fed right into his point. Probably. Maybe. We don't know specifically. But by accounts, we, we, we can, we can uh, assess the probability that he was talking. If he wasn't talking about the resurrection then, he might be now, certainly. Do you think they stayed awake until daybreak? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like, a, nothing like a, 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 um, an, uh, an illustration in your sermon to bring people back to, back to, back to life there, so pardon the pun. Um, 
So he's preaching until daybreak. What is he doing also? What does he do with them? There's a meal. Says he breaks bread with them. He eats. He has communion with them again. And then they eat a fellowship meal together. And then what does he do? He conversed with them a while longer. <laughs> he was not wanting to let them go. But he did eventually. Um, the first lock-in. The first lock-in. <laughs> nice. Nice. So... Um, Eutychus was taken away alive. The church has a clear and very tangible picture of resurrection power of the gospel. And they are encouraged and greatly comforted, it says, not just with Eutychus, but also through the thought that, of Paul no longer being with them. And there's a third point here. Christ is made strong in our weaknesses, even when we can't keep our eyes open for a mere 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Of course, he was preaching a little bit longer. All right, look at verses 13 through 17. We'll finish up. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Why would he go past Ephesus? He spent all this time with all these other churches. Why would he go past Ephesus? He was probably there long enough to where he established some solid brothers to lead the church, and he felt confident that they didn't need in there. Yeah, and in fact, if we look in, on in verse 17, which we'll, we'll explore this next section next, next time, um, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then he goes into his speech to the elders at Ephesus. I, there's several theories of why. I mean, there, there may have been you know, some kind of, some kind of uh, uh, plot in Ephesus that he was aware of. Again, Luke doesn't give us details. It may be that he knew if he got to Ephesus, he wouldn't want to leave. <laughs> and he'd miss his time frame that he'd set up to get to Jerusalem. And there could be a ton of things. Several, several reasons for him not to, for him not to go. Um, but instead, he calls the leaders of Ephesus to him and Miletus. And, and we're going to pick up with that um, next time. A couple of things. Again, the thing that, that impressed me, and these, these travel logs are a little dry, and they're not exactly the best you know, discussion topics, but the thing that impressed me about this is the concern of Paul over those whom he had been given care. They're not trophy conversions for them. He loved these people. He agonized over them. He agonized over their struggle, their sins, their sorrows. He rejoiced with them in the Lord. He lived with them. He ate with them. He served with them. He loved them. He talks about it in, uh, in 2 Corinthians. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And so with this journey to Jerusalem and then on to Rome, everything is telling him he's not going to see them again. One of the great goals that we have had for this class for the past years is to, is to see leaders within our own body rise up. I want to draw out for you that this is what leadership looks like. It's supposed to be this way. And if you're a leader in the church, you're going to fail at this. It's going to happen. This is the heart that it requires. And Paul failed at this. I mean, there, he may have been too harsh at that letter that we don't have. Or we don't know. Um, I, I'm thankful to see that we already have some leadership coming out of this, out of this group. The, the, the heart that you have to have for the people you serve at, at, at any level looks like this. It's not just about piecing together something possibly interesting to hear on Sunday morning. These guys are doing life together. And Paul is right in that mix. We don't do that perfectly, and I certainly don't. Uh, I, I, I fall asleep sometimes and crash and burn, right? <laughs> but I'm greatly encouraged that as much as Paul loved his brothers in that region, and as much as the elders of this body love this congregation, Christ loves them more. And that he's the great pastor. And you get a sense here of Paul imitating Jesus. The, the last week of Christ's life, the, the time that he spent with his disciples, you see he doesn't want to let them go. And his prayer is, I'm going to the cross, Father hold them, almost with a, you know, the, the, the feeling of, I may not be able to hold them. This humanity, concern, anxious for his people. This is, the, this is how we are to imitate Christ whether in whatever area we're leading. Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's example here we see um, again, the heart of Christ for his church. And that's really, if you're going to be in any kind of, uh, you don't have to be elder or whatever, any kind of leadership position, people need to see that you love them. It's not just about theology. The theology should drive our practice. I'm very thankful. I was telling somebody the other day, I love the way you guys love to live together. I love the way that you do stuff, and Tammy and I find out after the fact. I mean, we don't feel too left out. It's okay. But we find out after the fact how y'all get together, you, you sing together, you, you, um, you have meals together. I, I love that. 
That's how life should be in the body of Christ. Community, working together, spurring each other on to good. I'm, I'm also hoping that in that we're encouraging each other to holiness, that we're praying for one another, that we're challenging one another in areas that we see. There's some things like that that it's not just one big love fest. It also has to be, hey, let's go toward Jesus. Let's look like Him. So I'm loving that. I love to see that in this group. That's great. Let's keep doing it. Any questions, comments on this? It's 10.05. Anything else? Again, this is a travel log passage. So, hey, it ain't numbers. <laughs> we'll be there soon. All right, let me pray. <laughs> Father, help that boy. <laughs> Lord, we do thank you again for the picture that we have of Christ's love for his people, that it's not an aloof leadership, that he is down in the trenches with us, praying for us, interceding for us, um, loving us, giving us grace where we fail, calling us to repentance again and again, teaching us to love one another as he loves us, Submitting to Him as we submit to one another. All of, those, um, all of those commands, those imperatives that we have in the New Testament do one thing. Build a unified body that looks like Jesus. And we pray that we do that better. Help us to be wise in how we love one another and challenge one another and encourage one another. I, I pray for Philip as uh, we begin uh, the next part of, of, of our time together this morning through the preached word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit would say to us this morning. I pray that he would be accurate and uh, pastoral and, um, and clear in his delivery of your word. I know he's been studying all week and I pray that you reward his efforts with hearts that are changed, hearts that are drawn closer to Jesus. And we pray that it starts with us. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.